Are we on? Yes? Okay. So for a second time, I want to greet you. And I also want to bring greetings from um, my home congregation in Elkhart, Indiana, as well as from your brothers and sisters around the world. We are gathering this week uh, in and around Abbotsford, and um, we represent maybe 60 to 80 different people uh, from over 40 countries. So uh, this is sort of the group giving leadership to Mennonite World Conference. There are different commissions, a deacon's commission. I'm chair of the missions commission. Uh, and uh, we gather to discuss uh, a variety of things related to the global church. We pray for the global church. <clears throat> we prepare for assemblies that will bring people together. If you're looking for inspiration, uh, in 2028, Mennonite World Conference will gather in Ethiopia that you just heard about. Um, and uh, I'm going to say a word about that in just a little bit. So I am aware that uh, you've been focusing on praying in the wilderness. And I thought maybe one of the things we could do would be pray for the global church in the wilderness, and particularly some of those places uh, where people are really struggling uh, with finding ways to be faithful to God's call. Just a quick couple words about uh, myself, me. Um, for 20 years, um, I was, uh, we lived as a family in France and in West Africa. Uh, that picture that you're looking at is pretty old because our son that I'm holding there is now 41. <laughs> um, but um, uh, we spent quite a few of those years doing village Bible teaching in uh, what was called the um, education by extension, living out in villages, and rather than building a school, uh, actually going to villages uh, and doing the teaching in villages. So rather than the students coming to a central location, the teacher went to the locations. Education, theological education by extension, it's called. And so that's what we did for many years. Um, and then uh, we came back to the States, uh, and um, for about 20 years I worked at um, Mission Administration. Uh, in international ministries with Mennonite Board of Missions and Mennonite Mission Network uh, in about 55 countries. So I had this unbelievable experience of being able to visit churches and partners and workers in many places of the world and see what God is up to. One uh, quick uh, picture of our current family. You can see there's some changes since uh, that first picture was taken, but uh, <clears throat> our daughter in the uh, top left is married to a gentleman from origin from Chile. Uh, in the bottom right, a, uh, our daughter is married to a Korean-American. And on the left, in the bottom, our son is married to a woman from Barbados. So this is what happens when you get involved in global missions. <laughs> And uh, it is such a joy. Our uh, son and daughter-in-law, um, Matthew and Tony, are living in Paris. 
and working um, as directors of the center, uh, the Mennonite Center in Paris. Uh, with Mennonite Mission Network, and some of what they do is um, uh, working with African churches in Paris. I don't know how much you know about all of the migration that is coming the opposite direction into European cities, but there are three to 500 African churches in Paris. Um, and uh, some of them are really sort of transplants from different parts of French-speaking Africa. Um, and so this is the Harris Church that I visited in September. We actually worshiped with some of them in Ivory Coast, and now they have churches in Paris. So our son is working there, and he and his wife are working at theological education for pastors in Paris, some of whom just come as uh, students or business people and get drawn into faith communities and have to give leadership, but they have no theological background. So uh, one of the things they do is, uh, is are working at how uh, people get trained in theological training if they don't have that background. Some of these churches are just one-off congregations, but then there is this church, which is called uh, the Impact Center, Christian Center. Uh, it's really a mega church in uh, African church in Paris. Um, it, uh, they had two Sunday morning services. Uh, we attended one of those uh, in, in September. It was packed full in a room three times this size of mostly youth and young adults from all over French-speaking Africa. They have 72 branch churches across France um, and additional churches in all of the French-speaking countries of Sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean over 20 different countries, and the majority of other European uh, countries across the European continent. So high-tech, uh, incredible worship band uh, with a lot of impact on uh, the youth, uh, African youth in the city of Paris. Dr. Walter Hollenweger, who was a Swiss uh, theologian, uh, made this interesting comment. We have prayed for a long time for revival in Europe, but we had no idea that it would come to us in the colors of black and brown. As we're praying for people in the wilderness, pray for the churches in Europe. Um, in London on a Sunday morning, there are more Africans worshiping in worship spaces than there are British people. Um, sometimes people have called France the cemetery of missionaries um, because it's tough work. But God works in mysterious ways. And there is uh, increased uh, interest in revival among uh, some sectors of the, the society. And some of that is being brought by immigrants who come to Paris and uh, demonstrate the vitality of the Holy Spirit in their lives and draw French people into a new relationship uh, with God. People who think they know what Christianity is, they have stereotypes, they have the cathedrals, they have the history, uh, and then they actually find people of faith, uh, and it changes their lives.
So, uh, I want to just describe briefly what has happened to the global church and to the Anabaptist community uh, in the last hundred years or so. Uh, this picture uh, is a picture of our family a couple years ago before my mother died. She's sitting in the middle of the picture. She was 95 years old when this picture was taken. Uh, and it's a little bit like the story we just heard uh, a few minutes ago about our sister who remembers the first telephone. Uh, my mother, when she reflect over her reflected over her life of the 20th century, uh, had, had quite a series of, of memories, like as a small girl being out in the cornfields and seeing this thing fly across the sky that didn't look like a bird, uh, and later she discovered was an airplane. She remembers the first time she saw an airplane. Uh, and as she reflected back over the 20th century of her life, the changes are more than phenomenal. Um, but one of those is the growth of the church. So when you look at a chart like this, uh, you see that in her lifetime, in 1919, just in the global Mennonite membership family, uh, there were roughly um, 2,000 congregations around the world. But of those congregations, only 10 of those were in Africa, Asia, or Latin America. There were something like 230,000 members in the global family, but only about 3,000 in Africa, Asia, or Latin America. All the others were in Europe, in Canada, uh, and the US. Now, if you look at the next slide, you'll see that there's a minor shift that has happened in the 20th century. From the time my mother was born, seeing her first airplane, to the realities of today, uh, Somewhere around two-thirds of the global family now lives in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, and that has happened uh, in the last hundred years. We're, we're still trying to get our heads around what that means. What, what this represents for the global Anabaptist family is also true of the global church. Roughly two-thirds to three-quarters of the global church now can be found in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. So sometimes, as I travel around, people ask me, so, so who are the Mennonites? And I'm sure you get a chance occasionally to uh, answer that question. Generally, that means that somebody picked up an issue of National Geographic and they saw something about the Amish, and they, somehow the name Mennonite was associated with that. Um, and so they're basically wondering if we're still driving around in horse and buggy and this kind of thing. So I love to give people three statistics. The first one is, if you want to know what the average Mennonite looks like, um, well, two-thirds to three-quarters of us live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Oh, that's surprising. So um, the second thing is there are more women in the global church than men. And the third statistic is that in many of those countries where the church exists, 
the population of those countries is, is in a majority under 25 years of age. So if you want to know what a typical Mennonite looks like today, uh, imagine a young um, late teens, early 20s Congolese woman uh, harvesting cassava in her village. And that would be a typical Mennonite. I like to, as I've traveled around the world, I like to take pictures of typical Mennonites so we can begin to shift our heads around what God has been up to, uh, sort of behind our backs and below the screen. I mean, we are amazed when we discover what is actually happening. So the question might be, what do all of us actually share in common from all these different places? And I'd like to just suggest four texts for us, four biblical texts uh, that I believe we share in common, and we may say these in different ways, but that we believe as God's people that God has a reconciling plan in Jesus Christ. And four texts that remind us of this are from Colossians, Romans, Ephesians, and 2 Corinthians. First of all, if we look at the next slide, that God's plan is cosmic. That's where we start when we talk about God's work in the world. It's where I start when people ask me, so what is mission? Well, the first point is that God is the missionary. God is the first missionary. Uh, and it all started because God took the initiative to set things right, right with a world that our ancestors messed up. Um, and God has been at this for a long time, from the very beginning. Um, and that the nature of what God is doing is actually of a cosmic nature. Um, I uh, grew up with a pastor father who had behind his desk a picture of Jesus sitting in the middle of peoples from around the world. And maybe you've seen pictures like that. And underneath was John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And as a little boy, when I looked at that, I was thinking, God loves all the people of the world. And that, folks, is true. Except that in John 3.16, the actual word for the world is for God so loved the cosmos. That's a little bit bigger than just the people of the world. It's God loves everything that is out of whack in the universe. And God has a plan to set it right. So I'm going to just invite you to read with me, if you can see it from where you're sitting, this verse from Colossians 1.20. Let's just read this together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's project is, first of all, cosmic. So we might get a little overwhelmed by that, because that sounds like a big project. And we might think, well, so how could my little life possibly matter in this big plan? 
Uh, the fact of the matter is, the scriptures are very clear that as big as God is working in the cosmos, you matter and I matter because God's plan is personal. It's about me, it's about you, where our lives are broken in our relationship with God. And so we have this verse in Romans 5 that I'd also like to read together uh, that reminds us that God's plan is about me and about you. Let's read this together. Therefore, <clears throat> since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some Christians stop there. And so there are books called Peace with God that don't reference anything but my personal relationship with God. Some people are comforted by the fact that I have my ticket to heaven and that's the most important thing that matters. The problem is the scripture won't let us stop there. It's a bigger plan. First of all, it's cosmic. But secondly, it's a, not just about me and my relationship with God, it's about our relationship together because God is creating a new community of reconciled people that we sometimes call the church. And that's part of the plan. So in Ephesians 2, we have this remarkable, remarkable passage in verses 13 and 18 that tell us this, and I'm going to invite you to read this together with me. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father of one spirit. So. Maybe Jews and Gentiles aren't the groups in our neighborhoods that need to be brought together, but God is still bringing about God's plan of bringing people in conflict, people who don't like each other, who don't get along, together in a new community of faith. And um, this is central to what God is doing, and we need to remind ourselves. Now, the question is, how... Um, would the word of God's cosmic project get out? And God had a lot of possibilities. You know, we know that he could have positioned angels in the sky over Abbotsford to sing for 2,000 years. Might have gotten a little old. But we know that that was a possibility. Peace on earth, goodwill to all. Could have run a gospel blimp over Vancouver. I mean, how many possibilities did God, God, God have? But amazingly, what God chose to do was actually to call forth the very people who have been reconciled to God and to each other through Christ to be the primary model and messengers of God's cosmic plan. So when you gather here, on a Sunday morning, it's not a question of putting in an hour's time or an extra activity in the middle of your week. What you are doing here is the most important thing in the cosmos. And that ups the ante a little bit. That makes it really important what we are doing here because we have been called to be the primary, not the only, but the primary model and messenger of what God is doing in the world.
That's why we gather on a Sunday morning. That's why we study the scriptures together. That's why we pray together to strengthen our resolve to be about this. I have a friend who traveled a lot, travels a lot, and um, on one of his traveling trips, he was a little behind schedule, and um, he was running through uh, the terminal um, and uh, needing to catch his flight. He hadn't had dinner in the evening, um, and he decided he was, he, he was going to take whichever restaurant was left and just try to throw some food in a bag and get on the plane. So uh, he comes up to this place that was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, I have no idea whether... Do you have that in Vancouver? KFC? Okay, okay. So he rushes up to the counter, and he says, Okay, I am so late, and I don't even have time to read all your signs about all the stuff you do, uh, but I just need some chicken. So just throw some things in a bag and tell me how much I owe you. The woman who was running the little shop looked at him and said, You know, sir, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, but uh, we, we are actually out of chicken. <laughs> he looked at her and he said, excuse me? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, so we have coleslaw, we have biscuits, but we are actually out of chicken. And he looked at her and he said, but chicken is what you do. <laughs> Participating in God's cosmic plan is what the church does. We can have a lot of other activities. We can be involved in all kinds of things. But if we're not doing that, uh, we've run out of chicken. It's as simple as that. This is our central calling. 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us that we have been called to be the ambassadors of God's plan. And maybe we can just read that together as a reminder of why we're here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Folks, let's not run out of chicken. Because we have a lot of work to do. One-third of the world's population has never heard the name Jesus. Now, that... That's probably less difficult to believe than it was before social media, because you can get almost anything uh, today. You might run across the name Jesus on social media in some parts of the world. But the fact is, there are many, many millions of people in the world who have never met a Christian. They've never seen a church building. They know nothing about the Word of God or God's people. Um, and so we still have this massive task. If we think that the most important thing that the church is 
about and what we are called to be, and one-third of our globe does not know that or even know about it, then we still have some work to do. Um, in this picture of China, uh, this is, you know, a, a billion and a half people. Um, much of what I'm describing is true for much of China. And a few years ago, I was uh, traveling there in this next picture. We were eating a meal, and this old Chinese minister was asked to give the opening prayer of the meal, and he stood up and he prayed for 20 minutes. And I later discovered that during his lifetime, his churches had been shut down, and, uh, and he um, was made part of a workforce. Um, and so he lost his congregation. And in recent years, uh, a part of that church was reopened on an Easter Sunday, and uh, the place was packed. And he had no idea whether anybody would show up. But he was so grateful uh, for uh, a, a minor revival of the church uh, that he had 20 minutes of prayer for the meal. Uh, but while he was praying, there were two uh, servants of the table, these big round tables with food, you know. Um, and one of the people, young, they were both young people, university students who had jobs there, um, who were plunking plates of food down on the table. So he was praying away, and it was clunkety, clunk, 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 you know, just, and the table would swirl around, and we'd place the next one down, and then there was a guy serving us tea. And he was using what looked like a great big sprinkling can with a long spout, and between each of us was a, a little cup for the tea, and he was whoosh, like this, you know, and hitting the cup without dropping on the table. Uh, a, a, a real act of artistry, artistry. But this made a lot of noise. So it was bangity bang, 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 and whoosh, you know, all during the prayer. And at the end, I said, wow, that was interesting. I mean, not exactly customer friendly. <laughs> the person sitting next to me said, you know, those young people were not being disrespectful. They had no clue what we were doing. They had never seen anybody pray before a meal. So they were just doing their job. Um, these are students who would have spent their life in university and hearing that Christianity uh, is old school and uh, is imperialistic and all the rest. And so they had no sense of orientation. The church in China is growing, attempting to grow but struggles because they are in constant debate and conflict with the, Marxist, with the government, communist government. So here's a church that was built. You don't think of China having churches like this. There are something like 70 million Christians in China out of a billion and a half. That's a lot of Christians, but always needing to pay attention because the government is not too happy with the growth of the church. And so um, it, this is a congregation in Sanjian who spent years putting this gorgeous church building together. 
But more recently, the government decided they were too close to a highway or their parking lot wasn't big enough or something, and literally they came in to that church building and tore the entire thing down in 24 hours. It would be shocking for you to show up at this church on a Sunday morning and not see a building. Um, that is what the church is facing, and it's been only worse in recent years. As you pray for the church in China in the wilderness, pray for the faithfulness of the church. And then there is one-third of the world's population that has little information about Jesus or has deliberately chosen um, not to embrace him. And if you look at some of these pictures, you know why. Um, the way First Nations people have been treated, the fact that any of them are believers in Jesus is nothing short of a modern miracle. And that's true in our country in the U.S. as well even though there are, there are believers among the Native American community, the First Nations community, and you wonder how did that happen other than the miracle of, of the message of Jesus getting through. Um, in many parts of the world, people have been treated in such a way, including by Christians in the Crusades and things that we have long gone forgotten a thousand years ago which Muslims and Jewish community have never forgotten. And they have deliberately decided who Christians are and that they do not want it. Um, the same thing is true in Europe. I just read uh, this last week that France is um, investing close to a billion dollars to restore the Notre Dame Cathedral before the Olympics in 24. There's a handful of people who would call that a community of faith. But the government's spending a billion dollars to make sure that building is put back in place because it's a major tourist attraction. So pray for our brothers and sisters in Europe, in Muslim communities around the world, in Messianic Jewish communities, and Mennonites have connection with all of these different places as you think about the struggles that people are facing. And then there are one-third of the world's population that identify themselves as part of the Christian family. Half of those are Roman Catholic. <laughs> and then there are lots of evangelicals and Pentecostals and Af independent churches from uh, all sorts of origins. Um, more or less involved in God's mission, but sometimes they forget the reason for which they exist and need to be reminded I've been attracted to this next formula where I think it's helpful to say that my experience is that healthy congregations embrace the 444,000 approach, and I actually do not know who came up with this. But it's fascinating from Acts 1-8 where Jesus commands his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this isn't just a historical description of what happens in the Acts of the Apostles, but some people say, this is actually an interesting plan. 
that if your, congreg your congregation should focus on some kind of meaningful ministry within four miles of your church, your church building, so that if you would disappear someday, your neighborhood would know. <laughs> your community would be aware that something is missing because that congregation is gone. Um, so some kind of meaningful ministry or maybe multiple meaningful ministries. And then within 40 miles or kilometers from your church building, uh, which can mean partnering with other churches in an urban setting like Vancouver or other things. But you're getting beyond your main street, your neighborhood, to a, a bigger picture. This is the Judea and the Samaria of your congregation. And then lastly, that you have at least some important and regular contact with some faith community 4,000 miles from where you live. I hear that in this congregation, Columbia might be that place, but there could be other places that you would particularly adopt as a place for prayer and for uh, holding them up and learning more about the struggles that they have. Um, I'm going to just reference four of those from 4,000 miles away uh, and challenge you to adopt these or others within even the Anabaptist family of faith. In Indonesia, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. It, there are more Muslims in Indonesia in the 17,000 islands of Indonesia uh, than in all of the Arab countries put together. And there are 120,000 Mennonites, Anabaptists. What does it mean to be an Anabaptist presence in the country of Indonesia? Be in prayer. There are good relationships with Muslims, but there are also some significant challenges because being Christians there can be a threat. And the government constantly underestimates the total number of Christians because it doesn't look good when the church is growing in a Muslim country. But there we go with Anabaptists who are seeking peaceful ways to be models and messengers of God's reconciling plan. A couple weeks ago, I was in Thailand for the World Evangelical Alliance. I'm part of the arts track there. Um, 30 uh, congregations from the Hmong indigenous uh, tribes tribe just joined Mennonite World Conference in 2018. Um, they are minority group within largely Buddhist uh, uh, country. Uh, and they are trying to figure out how to be followers of Jesus. Um, a very different kind of context. There was a period where many of the young people embraced Marxism, so they're coming out of that backdrop, uh, and now uh, also trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in the, in the 21st century. And then there's the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo. These are Mennonite women from Eastern Congo. Um, they're... I don't know if you know this, but there are 250,000 Mennonites in the Congo. Uh, French-speaking and local languages, again, trying to figure out how to live faithfully 
in situations where there's been ongoing civil conflict, ethnic conflict, and out in the East in particular, uh, the abuse of women and children. Um, how do you live faithfully as messengers of peace in a situation like that? We have Congolese who are part of our gathering here, uh, and we'll be praying for them. And then there's Ethiopia that we heard about last evening. In Ethiopia, the Masoretic Christos Church is the largest national body of Mennonite World Conference with 660,000 members. It's um, larger than the U.S. And, or, Can or Canada, uh, the largest body uh, with uh, over 1,000 local churches and church planting centers. It's the place that will be the next International uh, Mennonite World Conference Assembly in 2018. But they are going through a, a difficult time of ethnic tension with the Orthodox Church, who has an existence there of 1,600 years, uh, and with a region in the north, the Tigray region in the north. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to be God's people in Ethiopia. Let's be in prayer for the global church. And I'd like to just end with a prayer um, and pray for some of what we heard here this morning and then end with a prayer from Indian believers who are praying for us as we seek to be faithful in our time and place. Let's finish with prayer together. Our gracious God, we come before you reminding ourselves of our primary identity, our primary calling, and we place all these things before you. There are many things in the world we do not know, but we do know how to pray, and we lift them up to you because you are the one who sees all and knows all and can intervene and strengthen your people as they seek to be faithful to you. And now this benediction, Indian benediction, to remind us of our primary challenge. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father be with you, and may the Holy Spirit come upon you and disturb you and trouble you and set before you an impossible task and dare you to do it until in your desperation you fall on your knees and remain there until God fills you with his power, which alone will enable you to do it. And then, but only then, may the Lord grant you his peace. Amen.